You're listening to the Practically Pastoring Podcast, where we want to help pastors and church leaders share ideas, become better shepherds and leaders, and have a good time with friends. Welcome back to the Practically Pastoring Podcast. My name is Frank, and I am here with uh, my friends from across the eastern side of the United States. We got up in Baltimore, Maryland, Jeffrey Simpson. Howdy, howdy. Down in Florida together, we have Andrew Larson. I just want to uh, be a better shepherd. There you go. And we got Timothy Miller. I want to be a better friend. There we go. Hey, uh, Delmar is on assignment, so he will not be able to join us today. But we have a great episode in store for you. Um, later, we're going to interview my buddy, Adam Malika, who's our small group and discipleship pastor. And we're going to talk about how my church does small groups. It's the primary way we do discipleship. And we're also going to talk about how we create our small group guides um, at, uh, for our whole church every single year in-house. And and if you stick around, I'll tell you how you can get a couple PDF digital copies of some of our past uh, small group guides, but hey, we're I here. I just want to go we're... back to you saying that Delmar's on assignment. It sounds yeah. like we, we we sent him to Bolivia to report on what's going on down there. Yeah, he's he's he's, he's in a meeting. He's a pastor with a real job. No, 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 no. He is. He always says on assignment. He's opening his word and trying to figure out. Like when Stephen Furtick to go said, to Disneyland. He says he's on assignment too. You know, he so 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 Delmar's in South Carolina. And so is Elevation Church, right? Elevation Church is in South Carolina. I just say Disneyland. I meant Disney World. Yeah, I get it right. My bad. Forgive you. But Elevation Church is in one of the Carolina states, and they're both SBC. And since Dell is SBC too, uh, they have to care for one another, even though they're autonomous, whatever that means. And um, and so Stephen Furtick said some things recently, and I think Dell is currently in his word trying to figure out where Stephen Furtick got it. Have you guys heard about this clip? Okay, well, I luckily I have the audio from the clip. So let's listen to Stephen Furtick with this amazing transition about how we can behold Exposition. the beauty of the cross. Listen to this. That's why they had to take the uh, Old Town Road off of the uh, Billboard charts on country music because it was too different. They couldn't they couldn't find a category for it, and they said it's not country enough, but it's not rap enough, and we don't know what it is. It's different. That's why they crucified Jesus. Oh, that's why. Right, right, right. Oh, I just wish I had people agreeing with everything that I said that was that ludicrous all that's the time. Right. Very obvious that's they're right. not even listening to what he, the words that are he's speaking. That's right. They are. I think I think it's more of just like they've and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing in the sense of what happened just now, but they've developed a culture I where... do I necessarily think that was bad. <laughs> it is bad. <laughs> Theologically saying, that was bad. <laughs> what I'm saying is I think they've created a culture where there's a lot of call and response and I think the the crowd is just you know, they respond to everything. They hear words and they just say yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So do you think uh Lil Nas X and Jesus have that in common that they're both different and that's why Jesus was crucified? I isn't don't Lil, think that's his, why Jesus was crucified. Isn't Lil Nas X like subtitle Man of Sorrows or something? <laughs> that they're related in that? <laughs> Man of Sorrows. <laughs> oh, that's I, so dumb. Yeah, I just, I'm just going to say that was dumb. I don't know. I mean, 
I guess I should listen to the whole sermon to hear the context, but I'm sure. not gonna. I'm, I'm not. But if gonna. you ever need to illustrate what Paul meant by the foolishness of preaching, mm. that's it. it right there. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's the one. I mean, it does definitely give off like youth ministry vibes, where you're like so hard, hard trying so hard to like be relevant, Make and then a cool it's reference. like the hardest left turn ever to get it back to scripture. And it's like, well, that's what? the reason why I manuscript. So those words don't come out of my mouth. In that yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hopefully the Holy spirit and Grammarly will find it and be like, no, 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 no. Don't say this. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you use a theological word with Grammarly. And then it's like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what this is. Yeah. Well, anyways, besides Stephen Furtick using Lil Nas X as a, as a type of Jesus, uh, what? How was your weeks? How was how was how was your services this past weekend? We had a uh, I had an, one of those moments where you're watching something unfold from the platform, like in the congregation, and you're like, no. So you know we're still kind of post COVID, and we had somebody visit yesterday. She came in. Uh, we're not mask mandatory, but some people still wear them. Uh, and so this person came in. Uh, I don't know, younger woman, maybe in her thirties ish came in by herself to visit. And so, uh, Andrew, you know, this in a smaller church, you're like, Oh, I'm a visitor. And so, um, you know, I'm, this is during the greeting time. I see her walk in the back of the room. I'm up on the platform, kind of letting people greet each other. And, you know, I guess I didn't think about it or I haven't said anything for a few weeks, but, um, she came in and one of my most like friendly guys, great heart, really loves people walked up to her and offered his hand in a handshake and she did the like, ah, I'm not ready for that body language. And it was real awkward. They both did the shoulder lean back and then shook hands anyway. And I could tell it was real weird for her. And so, you know, as a pastor of a small church where visitors are like gold, I did not get a, I did not get a connect card. And, uh, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, went, I, extend, I went to like extend the elbow or the fist bump uh-huh. because you just know, I, you know, lately I just, no been one doing wants to touch of, you. It's like a modified, um, you know, like Asian leaning greeting, like the bow. That's kind of what I go for now. I just like say hi, hey, how you doing? I give the nice head nod, and that's it. I don't even extend. And if they extend, it makes hand, sense I'm good with since it. you preach with the kimono on anyway. Yeah, so it then does. it's just a, it. It makes way more sense that way. It really does. The camera shot's only a waist up, so you can't really tell. But that's what's going on. But yeah, so I was like at lunch, you know, just running in my head, like, oh man, I don't want to be, you know, like. My guy didn't do anything wrong. He was just being friendly. He was a door greeter that day, so that was kind of his job. But it's like post-COVID world, man. I'm over it. I'm, I'm over it. Well, our services were fairly normal and event-free in a, in a good way on Sunday, which was necessary because on Thursday night I uh, showed Sigourney Weaver getting undressed to a women to a women's ministry event um, that was <laughs> okay, packed so out in our fellowship hall. Suss that out. We, we want got to more. this. And people who listen, we have a group text, uh, which <laughs> none of you shall ever, ever see. But um, No, because you would yeah, never Andrew, listen to this podcast if you Andrew, saw that group text. text. <laughs> Share with us, because we all we got was the text version. We we have a women's ministry. Uh, it's, it's an outreach ministry. It's, you know, I'd say maybe a third of the women that attend are from our church, and then two-thirds are women that our church is ministering to that don't regularly worship with us. And around Christmas every year we do a big dinner 
And the thought is a lot of these women do not have people make meals for them and certainly not serve them. So our men's group, they come, some of them are like wearing tuxedos to serve this dinner. It's a, it's a pretty big deal. It's one of our biggest outreach events of the year. And in the past, we would always have like a carol sing at some point during this Christmas dinner. And there were no musicians this year. And so we were putting a carol sing on the TV that they could sing along with. And I handed the remote after getting this pulled up to the lady I work with, Shirley, and she hit the live TV button on the remote. And our TV is not hooked up into any cable box or anything, but it's a Samsung smart TV. And when she hit that button, it went to one of the free channels that comes with a Samsung TV, which I believe was called Samsung Movies Now. And I don't know if you remember the film Heartbreakers from 2001, where Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt played a mother and daughter that would uh, marry a rich man, and then the daughter would go and seduce said rich man so that the mother got a fat divorce settlement out of the deal. That was the plot of the movie, so clearly very edifying. And uh, when Seems the like a live ministry thing, yeah, when the live TV <laughs> button got hit. Um, Sigourney Weaver had just gotten married and was removing her wedding dress in front of her new wealthy husband. And so in a room with, you know, 40 or so women in it, there's me standing right in front of the TV as this happens. And there was yelling and laughter and it will live on in infamy forevermore. (laughs) Man, that's one of the greatest tech accident church stories I've ever heard. (laughs) You know, not often was there a tech accident and a 20 year old you know, B or C level movie comes on with uh, Sigourney Weaver taking right off right wedding moment. dress. Just at the exactly. right moment. Exactly. And it's, you know, I, I remember seeing this movie when I was a senior in high school because Jennifer Love Hewitt in 2001. Um, but there are maybe two or three scandalous movie moments in this PG 13 rated movie. And it just so happens that the default streaming channel on that TV happens to be that movie channel. And at that very perfect moment, as Ray Liotta was watching his new wife undress. Thanks a lot, Ray Liotta. I blame you. It was his fault. Wow. We we did not have any major tech issues. No one one was stripping um, in front of anyone at my church this past week. We did kick off all things Christmas. I know we're kind of a week late to the party. Um, I was out of town this past week doing our, our annual winter vacay as a fam and, uh, jumped back into the pulpit, uh, Sunday with our our Christmas series and all things Christmas and it was a uh, it was fun. I I love the Christmas season. I I love the the energy in the church during this time of the year. Always always seeing some some fresh faces and had some new volunteers stepping up yesterday which was really really cool to see. Some nice. of which I tried to train and they kind of laughed at me because they they already knew it. I was just kind of like doing some pro presenter tips and tricks and they kind of just giggled and apparently they had been serving at other churches where they were very very good at pro presenter. So it was kind of cool to see that. Yeah. <clears throat> this uh last Sunday was the first Sunday at our church where all of our Christmas decorations are up. So that was fun. And this is the first year we've ever had Christmas in our church. So we had to all the decorations I had to buy and get and new and and we had a group of volunteers last week to set. This it is up. like at your campus the first year. Yeah, my campus. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the other campuses have had at least one Christmas season. Nice. So, th- so I was like, I didn't know what to buy. I've never had to buy Christmas stuff for a church before, so I didn't know like how many wreaths. I didn't realize wreaths were so freaking expensive. They, they are. Oh my gosh! And then and then what's funny is I I decorated the you know we bought three trees. One for the stage, a big nice one for the stage, and then these two other ones. And then I 
a bunch of reefs and all this other stuff. And then literally the next day, a friend of mine who goes to my campus said, hey, I'm going up north, which Wisconsin is north, but there's north of Milwaukee, which is what's considered up north of here. <laughs> and that's where people like chop down their own Christmas trees. Yeah. And, and someone said, I want to buy the church a, a real Christmas tree. Can I can I cut one down and bring it down? And first off, I've never had a real tree, so I have no idea what that means or what the expectations are. And two, I just wish it was a day earlier so I wouldn't have to have bought the big tree I bought for the sanctuary. But all that to say is uh, this is going to tie into our clergy cliff note in a, in a small way. Um, do you guys have in your calendar around this time of year, mid-November to early December, a like last call for giving for people to give, you know, if they want to give above and beyond, um, help you guys get into the black? Do you guys do that? Do you have, is there a specific – how do you do that? Do you guys do that? Well, we do a year-end giving push, um, yeah. but it doesn't – I mean it, it can – depending on what the gift is, you have until the 31st. Um, so almost all the giving in my church is going to be good until the 31st. There are some things that have an earlier cutoff date. If they're coming, I I forget what they are, but if they're coming from like, uh, investment funds and stuff, there's like a date for it to get processed. But yeah, we do, uh, our denomination does some year end stuff. So we jump on that and then we, we did a get, we did a big giving Tuesday thing. Um, and this does go with our, uh, discussion later, but somebody texted me and was like, Hey, send the email out again that you just sent out about giving Tuesday because uh, someone, which is them is going to match up to $2,000. If you know, whatever we get by midnight on Tuesday. Oh wow! So they sent me that text at like four in the afternoon on Tuesday. So I, of course was like sent out the email text to people, (laughs) check your email, (laughs) you know? Like, yeah. So we, and we did pretty well. Um, But yeah, we do have a like end of year, year end giving thing that we do. Did you guys, sorry, Andrew, Tim, did you guys do that? Not not really. Well, yeah, you guys do your your like dinner of thanks. Or, yeah, so yeah, our, our dinner of thanks then. is like it, you know the middle of November is always kind of like look how God has sustained us. But it's a more subtle. It's so we never like we never come out and say hey it's the end of the year. Make sure we can do this next year. Instead, it's a look what God has done <laughs> kind, kind kind of thing for our push. But. We, we, so we don't come out and say, you know, get get your end of the year gifts in. I think we have so many retired people that sure. have retired either to Florida or in Florida. So one way or another, they get the finances and the fiscal year stuff. Um, maybe we need to be saying it more for different demographics in our church. Sure. But the biggest contributors, they are so on top of that in our church yeah. that they they don't really need the reminder. We did give out the reminder yesterday. We're we're about a month behind budget right now. Well, before yesterday. And then we gave out that reminder and now we are not a month behind budget. Oh, so wow. it is kind of incredible how just making one announcement of, yep. oh, hey, by the way, this is what's going on. People are like, oh, I did not know that. Here's more money than, than I typically make in, you know, six months. Our yeah. our calendar as a church, we go. So it, March is when our church incorporated. And so we're technically only a little more than a decade old. So our annual meeting is March every year, not November, December. So there's that side of things as well. So we're, I don't know, our fiscal year is January 1st to December 31st, yet our church year is March to March. So it's weird. It's all weird. Do any of you guys have July fiscal year? Or are you all January, December? We're January, December. Our annual meeting's next week. Yeah, we have 
we're going to have one coming up soon too. Right, I know that the, there are a lot of advantages to doing July fiscal year. We've just never made the jump. Um, so we we had our like uh, big giving push this past week. We and 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 our church did something cool where like um, I've seen other churches do it where they have kind of like a year in review. Whether it's like a video or a PDF, or, or we actually printed these little booklets that give like a year in review of all the things Epicos did in this past year, and we mailed it to the we we had a meeting with the members. We mailed it out to everybody, um, and we also had, handed it to everybody in our church. We printed like a ton of copies, and it just gives a lot of details. We specifically say the deficit between what our budget is to be at the end of the year and things like that. And so now this is my first, I bring that up to say this is my first year ever having to give that speech. You know what I'm saying? Like we had a video and then I had to come up afterwards and say, you know, hey, this is what we're doing. And I'm just asking, you know, if you feel like you can give a little bit above and beyond your normal given tithes to help us um, finish strong is the word we used. And, uh, you know, asking for money is weird, but uh, I think sometimes I forget that's like a part of what we're, we got to do in our roles is to, Make sure the churches be able to – I like how Andrew said it, so we can do it again next year. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, hey, so we're talking a lot about money, and this actually goes great into our hang, clergy Hang on. Before before we get silly, but asking for money is weird, and I think Jeff and I probably relate to this the most, but asking for money is really weird when you yourself are the biggest part of the budget. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's sure. really, Hey, everyone. Really, really make sure weird. you get Hey, everybody. So I'll still make, get paid. Yeah, because essentially it feels like that sometimes. So we are blessed that we have a couple retired pastors in our church that a few times that like when we've done a, hey, we want to do a stewardship Sunday kind of thing. They're like, do you want me to take this? I'm like, please, yes, because, you know, hey, everybody, my name is Andrew. I'm uh, 60 percent of the total congregational budget. (laughs) Not only that, but like when you're the only staff member, you're really the only one to blame for any kind of spending, too. Yeah, (laughs) no one else is going out and using like the church credit card to buy the Christmas decorations or whatever. Yeah. So it's like he went to Sam's Club instead of Big Lots. This is his fault. Yeah, it really can be like that. Well, I was was just going to say before we move on, there's a great little book by Henry Nowen called A Spirituality of Fundraising. That's that's got a lot of good stuff in it. It's very small and it's Henry Nowen. So I'd recommend that. It, it is interesting engaging some of those conversations afterwards because some people met because I, I did say, you know, you can talk to me afterwards. And some people asked me, like, where did we overspend? Like, wh- what did we do wrong? Assuming that, like, the reason why we're not making our goals is that, like, we spent frivolously. And it's more like, actually, it's our giving didn't match the income side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and I mean, the good news is that we have, um, we have savings, so that's great. But like, it's just one of those things where it, I've never done it before in youth ministry. The only fundraising I had to do was like raise money for summer camp scholarships and stuff. Yeah, you raise and money. That's for That's super events. easy. People love giving money to kids. It's you know, maybe maybe that's the secret. They, they don't like giving money stage. to air conditioners, and yeah. they don't like giving money to uh, you know paying for cleaning and things like that. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's take a quick break because when we come back, um, we have. Something that around this time of year, we wish we all had uh, money in the walls. Let's see. Let's see. We'll, we'll hear about that in a second. But let's take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors.
So we're back, and uh, this is an article from I think the website's like Houston. Click to Houston, so it's a local Houston. Uh, I think it's an NBC affiliate, uh, and the the title is "Plumber Discovers Money Checks in Wall of Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church Years After Six Hundred Thousand Dollar Burglary." So, lots of stuff happened in that sentence. Uh, there was a, a, a uh, back in, I think it was 2014, I think it was, there was uh, a report that $600,000 went missing. I didn't know it was considered a burglary. I thought, if I remember correctly, I thought it was just like, they didn't know where it went, but I guess they just assumed it was a burglary. That was in 2014. And so then this is Joel Osteen's church. This is the Joel Osteen. Everyone knows him, you know, your best life now guy. Um, and, and then this I think it was like last week or something, there was a plumber who was doing work on a loose toilet or something. He moved the toilet, moved some tiles, and he said over 500 envelopes started falling out of the wall that was full of cash and checks. So and, amazing. And so, and, and, and so, okay, what's funny is I read this article, and this article specifically said um, – that the Houston Police Department is still investigating a seven-year-old case involving the appearance of $600,000. It is unclear how the money of the plumber discovered, but the case raises a lot of questions. I read somewhere else. Oh, it's it's further on in the article. That's right. It said, um, given the time of the case, Crime Stoppers of Houston said the statute of limitations has expired and the plumber who made the discovery will not receive any reward money. I was like, imagine if you were the plumber and you're given that split-second moment do I tell anybody about this or do I, or do I keep them? I don't know. All that to say is this, <clears throat> you guys, what do you do with this story? There's so many things. It's Joel Osteen's church. First off. Secondly, this is the same church of that lost it is. $600,000. Why is there money in the walls? What's in the like, I, I thought, okay. So I thought this was a hoax. And then my second thought was, Oh, this is a, this is a, like a, a play on HBO's righteous gemstones because there was a heist at a church <laughs> and a bunch of money was stolen. And I was like, that's exactly that's So I thought it was just like HBO doing a thing to get ready for like the next season. I was like, Oh, that's funny. And then I, I realized that it, that wasn't it. Like this actually happened. That is, yeah, that's not a TV show. And all of the arrested development uh, memes of there's always money in the banana stand. <laughs> right. So no, this is not what that was. What would you do? Like, what would you do? like? Like, first off, were you at all tempted to go to your bathrooms and like? Move I some pooped in around? every toilet at the church. <laughs> I like, went well, in the ladies' I, room, and just did did a butt wiggle just to see. Uh, yeah, I have personally removed and replaced all the toilets in this building, so I knew they weren't already. There was no six hundred thousand dollars. If our bathroom wasn't new construction, because like we literally made our bathrooms brand new from in yeah. a new room, I would have, I would have, I would have been tempted. But I know for a fact that there's just uh, <laughs> insulation in those walls. No, no money. Well, I, not even that there was money. Like, uh, if this would have said six hundred dollars, I would have been like, oh, that's still crazy. But like somebody put six hundred thousand dollars. What? That's enough. I was telling you guys before the thing. That's enough money for multiple years of my entire church's budget. Oh, for sure. Like, why? I, I just can't even wrap my mind around this. So there's for, over over a thousand dollars in each envelope because it's yeah. like those five, checks. It's it's too late. Like you, you miss you yeah. miss the window on those checks. Are you are you writing? Want. Yeah, like sorry, uh, oops. You can't cash well, those and, checks. And how many how many of those checks though? 
you know, because I know when this happened, they send the thing out like, hey, we had this this burglary or whatever this was. Um, so so be on the lookout. And if your check didn't get cash, let us know or cancel your one check. So a bunch of those probably came back. Sure. And they got rewritten. And, yeah. And, yeah. And they got rewritten. But that cash money. Cash that's just unbudgeted fun money. Man. Unbudgeted fun money. Unbudgeted. I, I mean, it is, uh, it, it's kind of crazy. But, but So – the story is crazy. Say what you will about Joel Osteen, and you know, I know he's he's adjacent to the prosperity gospel, and we can we can riff on that for a while. But I don't want to do that. Here's what I want to talk about. Um, on, a, on any given Sunday, when the tithes and offerings are passed around, whether you have a you tray passed around or you put your money in a box in the back or something, what happens in your churches after that? Like to me, how six hundred, how all this money ended up in a wall. Something something sketchy happened, and I don't know how it happened or what happened. But what happens in your churches? Share kind of your protocol when it comes to money being passed around in your church. All right, so we have drop boxes in the back if you're giving in person, which 75% of our giving is now online. But if you are giving in person, there's drop boxes in the back. We have um, a key leader who then takes those drop boxes after each service and puts the money in the safe until after service. And then we have our team of counters that comes in, counts the money, uh, gets the deposit slip ready. It goes back into the safe until Monday when our office administrator then gets said deposit slip puts the stuff in and then takes it to the bank that's that's typically what we do every week yeah we have a couple of different boxes one in the front one in the back of the church with the like the card slot that uh people give to and we're probably the opposite we're about 75 percent in person still and 25 percent online and then the money gets collected sunday after service and locked in um i think it's like locked in a little safe box inside of a file cabinet that's also locked and then monday um the count is done and the deposit is made we um we have a box in the back as well that started during covid we were still passing plates but we're not going back now um and i would say maybe 40 to 50 percent of our folks give online um and honestly that's the that's the best easiest way to deal with counting money is just have people give online because it's immediately just accounted for and there's no you know there's nothing paper to handle but um we have a team of guys that are we call them contribution counters and each week two of them get scheduled through planning center and they have like a one-page sheet of their protocol and so they after the service is over one of them goes downstairs in our basement gets the key for the box where people put stuff they grab all the checks and cash and they walk it down to with the other person um, to like the church office. They fill out a form that counts all the cash and checks. They fill out a deposit slip. Uh, this part is a little different for us. This is actually something that uh, we picked up from uh, another church. They make a, a copy of like a photocopy of the front of all the checks and they put that in a slot for our. So we have a treasurer and an assistant treasurer. The treasurer essentially pays all the bills. The assistant treasurer tracks all the income. And so those two sides of it are separated. So they make a copy of the front of the checks and they take the, uh, like the carbon copy of the um, bank deposit slip, staple it to those copies along with the little form that they have to fill out in initial for, you know, accounting for how many $20 bills and $10 bills and how many checks and all that. And that goes in like the mailbox for the assistant treasurer so that he can then come during the week and enter all that information into our um, 
you know, into our database of who gave what so that, which is also coming up at the end of January, we can send out giving statements. Um, and then, so that, that doesn't usually happen on a Sunday. And then the, uh, the counting guys will also put the deposit slip and all the deposits into one of those like plastic, uh, bank deposit uh, bags that you like seal that has a little receipt and they'll keep that receipt in the office. And then one of them that day immediately takes it and drops it in the night deposit box in the bank. So that's our system. So the money like from Sunday is supposed to be dropped in the bank, like on their way home on Sunday afternoon. So that's how we deal with it. And then the, it seems like a lot of our processes are kind of similar. I know we are at a multi-site campus. So um, all the offering is to be picked up right after the church, after it's collected and counted. And it's in like one of those like tamper proof bags. So that way, like, if someone opens it, like it's, it's there's evidence that it was open. Yeah, and then it's taken to a like safe on um, in one of our campuses. And so, anyways, it, that's it. That's it. it's interesting how we all kind of have similar, somewhat similar procedures. You know, a lot of the procedures is like you know, two, uh, four hands, four eyeballs. You know, what I'm saying so that way no one's just counting by themselves and stuff. But that I'll that's tell you, it got it got weird during the height of COVID though. Yeah, for us because it was like we were meeting outdoors and there was just a bucket, and oh, so sure. I'd have to like call somebody over and be like, "Hey, hey, before you leave your lawn chair church service, can you at least like stand here while we count this together?" Sure. And like sure. there was a few weeks where it was where I mean, as a small church pastor, sometimes like the guys forget or they don't show up or they just like I'll get a text on a Tuesday like, "Oh, hey, pastor, we forgot to count the money, so it's just still sitting in the box." <laughs> and I'm like, uh, okay, well, I guess it's waiting until next week. And then the treasurer gets frustrated if it's at the end of the month, because then it looks like, you know, stuff didn't get deposited and into the month it was supposed to get deposited into. Yeah. And it's a, it can be kind of a, a nightmare. What do you do with money? What do you guys do with money? That's like either a just handed to you during the week or it has nothing to do with like gifts. It's like for like a registration or like, like Tim, I know that the Sunday I visited your church, which we haven't talked about that. Have we, that I visited your church? Oh, you guys had like a freaking, um, merch table and all this, all this other stuff outside. It was, it was pretty wild. Um, what do you do with money like that? Our, I mean, if it's handed to me, if it's cash or a check, it typically goes to, you know, to the drop box, the lock box in the back. If it's a a specific dedicated gift, um, I I typically say, you know, hey, just just note on the check what this is for and and please hand this directly to our treasurer and then he'll take he'll take it from there. That's that's usually my my protocol, my go to on that stuff. When we're selling stuff, I think I don't know. Okay, yeah, I remember now. Uh, when we're selling certain things, or the week before you were there, Frank, we were, we're doing a big push to uh, get turkeys to a bunch of families at a, at a local elementary school. Um, they they received a lot of that petty cash, and they just told us, "Hey, here's how much we received. We're going to go make the purchase with this petty cash, and and we'll just you know we'll, they kind of kept their own accounting for that, and then just kept us in the loop on all of it." If somebody hands me like cash for something like that, I will usually. Uh, like walk over and pick up an offering envelope and ask them to put it inside of it and write what it's for. And then they, and then tell yeah. them to put it in the box. Let me ask you guys this question. Has this ever happened to either of you guys? Has, have you ever like been handed cash and it wasn't for a gift or offering? It was for like, they wanted to give it to you as like a blessing. 
and like like hands shook it to you. Has it ever happened to you guys? And if so, like how? Did yeah, you, it happened two years do? ago. Like I, they, it was a check, and it was written out to me personally. And the memo line said, "Please buy a gun and a gun safe for your protection at your house." So I mean, I <laughs> felt obligated. That's what I did. So I, I bought a handgun. I got I mean, registered. I put it in a safe. I had no I, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I felt obligated to do exactly what they asked How me to do. How many hours a week do you and I spend like, talking? And I've never heard this story I'm talking before. like 975 bucks, and it, and it, it covered it almost to the two teams. It, it was a beautiful thing. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. True it's story. Amazing. It's a good awesome. It's a beautiful I have, thing. I have never gotten that check before. I've gotten like, take your kids to ice cream. But $975 <laughs> to buy, buy yourself a, a gun? gun and a, well, have a you guys gun ever gotten somebody, box. has somebody ever handed you cash? Because I have had that. Someone has handed me cash. And too. if it's like on a Sunday when other people are there, I, what I did that day is I got I went and grabbed the assistant treasurer slash elder and brought him into the conversation and just said, hey, do you mind just hearing what he had to say? And sure. that way it was like so, somebody else heard this little wad of cash was supposed to be just for you. We have or I have in my office door a mail slot and our parking lot is the only parking lot in downtown safety Harbor accessible to the public. And there are paid events and paid parking things all the time. Here's there's different festivals and things. And so we have a sign in our parking lot that says, you know, we love our neighbors and our lot is open. If our lot is open to the public for anything. And, you know, if you would like to contribute to our ministry, there's a mail slot in the one office door. Cause my office door, like I've got a door right from my office out to the parking lot. And so probably, you know, on average 25 ish dollars a week comes in just from people going to the different restaurants and things downtown that want to feel like they've paid for their parking. And so I have a vase that's behind my head over here that I just put all that cash in because I've told Dylan, our youth guy that, that that's the pizza and whatever fun money budget for the youth group, because once it gets turned into grownups and, you know, all that stuff gets involved. Gets voted on. Exactly. And, but it's just really weird because our cleaning lady will come in and she'll like, she'll come in whatever night of the week she's coming in and there will just be cash laying on the floor by my (laughs) office door. And it's just like, how do you explain that? Like, Oh, you know, people just drop cash for me sometimes. But then after this past week, I can like, this isn't weird. $600,000 $600,000 in the wall of a bathroom is weird. That's 20 weird. bucks, 20 bucks on the floor. Perfectly normal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is some traditions where the way a congregate wants to honor their pastor is by slipping them cash. I, it gets weird because then it's like, if you, like the the person will say, like I one time they happened to me and they'll be like, that was a great sermon. And they'll slip me some money. And then the next time I preach and they shake my hand and they don't slip me money. I'm like, was my sermon bad? <laughs> Mediocre. It was mediocre. It wasn't worth my money this week. So, uh, but I mean, I had an older elder at my previous church who, um, when I began like preaching regularly in the rotation, it was, uh, hey, you didn't have any less responsibilities with the youth ministry or with the associate pastor role this week, but the senior pastor had less responsibilities this week because he wasn't preaching. So I want you to have this. And he would like hand me a 50 every time I preach. Wow. Because, you know, I went. I, I had extra responsibilities this week. Pretty cool. Than what my uh, job title or responsibilities typically said that I would have. So yeah, that was really weird and awkward. And then you feel obligated. Like, so what do I like? Do I take? Do I take people from the church out to coffee? What like? What do I do with this money? 
Well, one thing I always say, I mean, and I say always, this happened to me the once, but one thing I would always, one thing I would, I would always say is you don't have to do this. Like I, this isn't necessary. Yeah, I get paid full time. I'm I get, yeah. And they're just like, and they always say, I know, I know. And they just, whatever. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I, I think if you're listening to this podcast, if you're from a small church or you're entering into ministry and this is a conversation, the biggest thing is take money seriously. This is not something you want to joke around with. Embezzlement is a big problem. And uh, there's a lot of uh, – I know a lot of people who've gotten fired in their, from their churches from embezzlement, um, whether that means like they use their church card for personal things and then they use fake receipts to uh to, to to turn in or something like i've heard about these stories you don't want to mess around with that you're you're, me- you're literally messing around with your church's tax exempt status you're messing around with your own integrity take money seriously um and and have like if, you, if you're not sure about something just ask the treasurer yes yeah. just like bring the treasurer in and ask the question and if it sounds legalistic or like a little a bit intense good like Better, better to be intense about that than, than I mean, like we when we ever we sell shirts maybe like twice a year, and it's a big deal because a lot of people want like church merch or whatever, and we beg people to use our Square app yeah. as opposed to giving us cash. We beg them because then we don't have to handle cash, and that way it's just one person with the phone and the thing, and they're just sliding their card and it's going into the Square app, and it's like oh great. Once cash gets involved, there's change receipts, so much work. And it's so, so much. Yeah. Digital world is better. So this is, <laughs> this is like the second week I was pastor here. Right. So the treasurer, I'm moving stuff around in the offices. I'm changing like where my office is and the treasurer uh, or the assistant treasurer counts the money. Like he, you know, he does the normal thing. And I guess that week he had made a mistake when he filled out the, those like tamper proof bank deposit bags that are like the plastic ones. And so it was all written out on the front and he had made a mistake. So he tore it open and put all the stuff in a new one and everything was fine. But he did that sitting at my desk when I wasn't here. And so when I, and then, and then he didn't throw anything away. So when I walked into my office on like Tuesday morning and opened my office door, there was an, a torn open bank deposit box with a like <laughs> deposit slip sitting on my desk. And I was like, this man is trying to sabotage my ministry two weeks in. Like, cause it, it literally looked like I had torn open the bag and taken everything out and just left it there. And so I approached him about it and he, he and I had a good laugh and he apologized and was like, I'm sorry. I just was in a hurry and I just didn't think about it. And if you knew his personality, you would know it's funny, but man, I was like stomach drop. Like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired immediately. And uh, but I didn't. And it was it was funny. I would also say that if you're super into, I don't know, running marathons and you're also on staff at a church, uh, those two things are fine. Um, However, but if you're if you're going to swipe the church card and use church funds to travel around the country to attend certain marathons, that would probably be. But what if the marathon was the same day as a conference that was happening in that city that you were going to? Like, that's okay, right? Like. Every conference we go to is like, hey, this is for your rest. This is for your relaxation. Maybe you skip a session and you sleep in. If they say that at the conference, sure. should is it still bad to only go to conferences in marathon cities on weekends that you're running? I say all that because uh, Andrew and I work with a guy who got fired for that very reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you shouldn't use I the think church it was card the use to register the, for a competitive marathon. 
the use of the church would, card is really well no but he was him. like hey there's a there's this conference you know in trinity florida in february of 2022 and oh by the way like, he would only go to conferences if they corresponded with a race that he was in and then like two years later it was found out wow this guy's gone to a lot of conferences weird and then they would like, call the conference and he never showed up he never got his credential he was not calling. he was just going oh, okay. he was just going to Ew. get the hotel room conference right so on the church card so oh, he was get, get the spending. flight in the rental oh yeah yes. bro he was paying yeah, for yeah. the conference not using it and paying for the marathon with the church card it's bad it's oh not good but it. it's just it's just a bad idea it's a really it's not bad even, idea it's like the boldness yeah the gall Mm. Dang. It's, uh, guys, be careful. Ladies, be careful. Be serious about your no, money. Be honest. Yeah, be honest. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hide it better, guys. Like, hide your money. No, no, no. no, no. Be, and listen, like, you're going to lose receipts once in a while. It's yeah. going to happen. If you're going to hide the money, but, let me suggest the bathroom. No one <laughs> ever like looks church. behind the, no one ever looks behind those tiles. That's right. You're fine. It's a good spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear from um, uh, my small groups and discipleship pastor. So... uh, uh, today's episode, we sit down with my small group pastor at Epicus Church in Milwaukee. Uh, uh, his name is Adam Malika. The primary means at Epicus Church for discipleship is through small groups. That means we don't have a men's ministry. We don't have a women's ministry. We don't have Sunday school. Um, we follow that book um, called Simple Church, and we're pretty consistent with it. And so the primary way, the pretty much the only way we do discipleship at our church is through small groups. And we take it so seriously that we create our own small group curriculum every single year. Um, we have we create a book of small a small group guide that goes along parallel with the sermon series. And so Adam is going to talk about what small groups look like at Epicos, how we create curriculum, and how we engage folks who are in those small groups who come from different kind of spiritual backgrounds. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Adam. And then when you get back, uh, I'll tell you how you can get some of these resources. Listen to this episode with Adam Malika. Hey, I am here with a a friend of mine who I've known for a couple of years now, uh, and uh, this is a bit self serving for the podcast because he works with me. So I do think he's the expert on small groups and discipleship, and it's just a coincidence that he works at my church. Uh, his name is Adam Malika. He he, as I said, he's our. I want to make sure he says the title for what he is himself, but he serves as our small groups pastor, director, whatever title he wants to use. Um, for our church, and our church has a a long history when it comes to small groups, and he he'll explain a little bit about that. But uh, but hey, Adam, I would love for you to tell everyone who you are, your title, what you do at Epicos, and how long you've been here, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, as Frank said, uh, I'm Adam. I've been at Epicos a little bit since a little bit after you, Frank. I joined July of 2016. I think you were 2015 if I remember correctly, uh, originally joined in children's ministry. And then after three years, uh, in 20, May of 2019, I got asked to move into the small groups pastor role. And so pastor of small groups, small groups, pastor, whatever you want to, however you want to label it. That's what I do here at Epicos among some other things. Um, 
And in the midst of me moving into this moment's pastoral, I was attending Westminster Theological Seminary out in Pennsylvania to get my uh, master's in biblical counseling, which is um, been great and even has influenced the small groups ministry here at Epicos and some of the care aspects as well. I think a thing that we should begin with is, is as I've been a pastor for however long I've been a pastor now, I, and I talk to other churches, I realize that small groups is not probably the most common way of doing discipleship in most churches. I would say actually a form of small groups is done, whether it's whether it's Sunday school classes or whether it's um, some sort of like Bible study. But like the true way we do small groups, the way we do it, is I think a fairly unique thing or a fairly modern thing. And so I would love for you to say to answer the question: What does small groups look like at Epicos specifically? And and then kind of speak into how we create curriculum and maybe even speak into why we don't do like a woman's Bible study or a men's Bible study or a Sunday school class. I would love for you to speak into that. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a loaded question, but I can share as much as as many details as possible. Um, so at Epcos, as you know, Frank, uh, we like to espouse like this, what we would call the simple church model. So really like Sundays, youth ministry and small groups that's kind of and kids ministry obviously um, those are kind of the, the tiers of the main pillars of what we do and so at epicos our small groups what they look like is um, we approach them on a seasonal basis so we do three seasons a year uh, about 10 to 12 weeks per season and our small groups consist of anywhere from 12 to 20 people and we let small group leaders kind of choose their their size of their small group the top of the the highest size of their small group if you will um, and so what that does, especially the seasonal approach, we used to do, uh, September to May. And so small groups were really nine months. Right. And so we, we like to close registration after about a week or two into the season because we like the continuity of groups and we like to, um, have people build relationships and when you have people coming and going, it just, it, uh, it can harm that. And so what the seasonal approach does is it allows more people to get into small groups more often. And oftentimes small groups, like my wife and I, we've been leading a group for, two years and we've had couples that have fluctuated in and out, but we've had a good core of probably about six couples that have stayed in the group. Um, and so it allows people to easily onboard, easily offboard, uh, throughout your calendar year. You really, we're really talking about small groups quite a bit, um, from the announcement from the stage, at least nine times a year, we're talking about, Hey, join a small group. That doesn't even include about small group, but recruiting stuff like that. So small groups is a huge part of what we do at Epicos. Uh, the structure of small groups themselves, we, would call them sermon-based small groups. And so uh, we don't have some groups doing different types of studies that are decided by the leaders across all four of our campuses, five if you count our online campus. Um, people are joining small groups and they're discussing the sermon that was preached along with the passage that was preached. And to help aid in that, we produce um, a study guide, as Frank mentioned, our, our curriculum. And so our study guide, we create in advance. We kind of have our lead pastor um, very loosely has kind of a 16-year scope and sequence of the books that we're going to go through as a church. And so um, we're an expository church, so we go through books of the Bible at a time. And so right now we've been going through John since, what, February, something like that. And we're going to continue doing that into next February um, until we start our next series, which is going to be a kind of a flyover of the New Testament. And so as we're preparing for the next sermon series, myself and a team of people, both staff and lay people within the church, uh, gather and talk about the good, the bad, the ugly of previous study guides, how we can improve them, 
uh, changes that can be made. And then from that meeting, we also um, kind of disperse assignments on who's going to handle which passages as they're as they've been broken down by our lead pastor. And so when you open up, I have it in my hand right now, when you open up our study guide, so I'm looking at our, our study guide for John right now. You've got your passage and it's a it's a lay flat two pages, um, one section for sermon notes, another section for journals, notes, and prayers. And then you turn the page and you get into your questions. And so on the left hand side, we have our observe and interpret. And so our observe and interpret questions are really just our hope of getting people into the Bible. Sometimes they're super easy questions like, what did Jesus say here? Or what words do you see repeated in this passage? Stuff like that, just to get people, um, their minds going and get them diving into scripture. Secondly, we have our discussion questions. And these are really meant, while you can discuss the observe and interpret questions in small group, um, the discussion questions are really what drives the discussion in small groups. little side caveat, our small group time is structured. It's, it's 90 minutes total that our groups meet for. Uh, 30 minutes community building, 30 minutes discussion or Bible study, 30 minutes prayer. Give or take, those aren't hard and fast, but... And that's something that something? I don't... I, yeah, I don't know if you mentioned this. Um, uh, these small groups, most of them do not meet at church. They meet in Correct. house. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, like, I, so I want to make sure that people understand that is that um, every year there's a recruitment of volunteers to lead small groups. And, and we haven't really even talked about what is all involved in like recruiting or what qualifies someone to be a small group leader. But, but just know that there is like a, a large number of individuals or couples who are small group leaders. And yep. the expectation is for them to lead their small group in their homes or at a coffee shop. And then there's maybe a small handful, I would say in the scope of everything, that do meet in the church, but that is a minority of people compared to the majority are meeting in homes almost every single day of the week. Definitely. And we have, yeah, so um, we've got 54 groups this fall. And out of those 54 groups, it's made up of, I think, 96 leaders, something like that. So a lot of, a lot of groups are led by more than, more than one person. I think uh, at your campus, Frank, you've got a group. I can't remember if they're meeting this season, but they, they're all the way out in uh, Ridgefield, which is like, 20 minutes from our most west campus, your campus, Mayfair, um, all the way to our Upper East Side or Shorewood. So it's like our small groups span a large geographical region here in Milwaukee, which is kind of nuts. Um, getting back to the study guide quick. So yeah, the discussion questions are really meant to drive the discussion time in our small groups. And then there's a third section, which I'm, I'm most, most partial to, which is our formation and application section. Uh, the reason I'm most partial to it is because I have a, a deep passion for seeing the church engage in spiritual practices. And so the formation and application questions are a little bit more, um, have a little bit more verbiage behind them. But as myself and the team are writing questions, we're, we're drawing insight, we're drawing wisdom from the passage, and then we're applying it to see what spiritual practice people can engage in. And so there'll be a question and then there'll be um, an example of a spiritual practice tied to that question that they can begin to engage in. So I think if people want, I mean, they can, our books are available for sale if they want more information on what these look like. Can you give an example of the spiritual practices? Um, Cause I think, I know for us at Epicos, that's probably been the most like um, uh hurdle for people to wrap their minds around of like, Hey, because this is obviously the spiritual practice has been a newer thing we've added to the guide probably within the past year and a half, two years. And, and I think that like, um, 
you know, in our small groups, it's more than just, hey, here are some questions about the sermon and let's pray for each other's prayer requests. We're also encouraging people to do certain spiritual practices. I would love for you to give like one or two examples of a spiritual practice that are in the book. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this last week, we this last Sunday, we went through John 16, 5 to 33, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the relationship of the Trinity, how it's better that the Holy Spirit comes. Um, and I'll just read one of the questions, if you don't mind, that we had under formation application. So uh, this was question number two that we had for John 16, 5 through 33. Jesus tells his disciples that they will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet he also says, I am not alone for the Father is with me. Unlike the disciples at that time, as believers, we now have the Holy Spirit living inside us. Like Christ, even when we are away from others, God is with us. Getting alone with God out of the presence of others for even a few moments should be a regular part of our lives. No matter your circumstance, how can you implement time alone with God, whether it's five minutes, four hours, or days and weeks? And so just kind of like priming the pump on getting people to see that silence and solitude is a huge part of what Jesus did, and we should follow up his model on that. And these questions are really just to get people thinking about those things. And would you say I'm right in saying that the average expectation, not only for a small group leader, but for a small group participant, is to listen to the sermon, take down any sermon notes they want to take down, sometime before a small group, go through the questions, answer those questions, maybe as a part of the devotional time or something, including the spiritual practice stuff. And then when they get to the small group, the small group leader may pick one or two, three or four questions that they felt like is most relevant to their group. And then they discuss those questions. Is that how would you say is the course of a week for an average person who's in the small group? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The hope is for our entire church leaders and members of a small group to go through every single question in the study. Right. Whether or not we all do that, I even get busy sometimes and don't do that. Um, but that's the hope. And then in preparation for the small group, yeah, the small group leader is really the one spending half an hour to an hour before group. Okay. Which questions do I feel like are most pertinent to to my group? Which ones are going to make sense? Um, and then they're discussing those within the small group discussion. And then I also send out on a weekly basis, either on Sunday afternoons or early Monday mornings. Um, my small group leaders can maybe attest sometimes it's after lunch on Monday because I get behind the ball, but uh, I send out what are called leaders notes. And so because we write the study guide so far in advance of the sermon that's preached, there's, there's sometimes a disconnect, right? And so the leaders notes serve to bridge the gap between the study that we've produced months in advance and the sermon that was preached on that Sunday morning. This is a, with, this is a per, I was going to say, this is a perfect segue into the next question. Um, okay. uh, so you just said that the study guide is written months in advance before mm-hmm. the sermons are even preached. I know I can account because I was, I was a little bit a part of the, the, the more of the creative side of the process right. uh, this time around, but um, I know that before the first sermons even preach, like almost months and months before that is when the books need to be printed or in the process of being printed. And so you're right that there is sometimes a disconnect between the sermon that is preached and the questions that are in the book. And so, you know, I, the, the, the couple of churches I do know that do a small group, um, small group sermon based small groups is they'll have a, a, a way where like, 
someone who is in your role or even the preaching pastor will write the questions after they preach the sermon and mail that out to their small group leaders. Right. Um, and I, and I just, I heard someone else that did that recently. Can you explain to me, and, and you can get very practical in terms of like, this is when we print and this is the kind of books or, you know, you can be as practical as you want. What is the process in creating the books each year? And then speaking to it after you do that, after like, then we sell the books and people get the books. Talk about the the weekly uh, email that you send out. Yeah. So uh, creation of the book, uh, we just finished and our designer is working on our, our New Testament flyover right now. And so um, I have it on my calendar to begin reaching out to the next study guide team this month or next month. Um, so pretty soon here, we're going to begin that process of developing the next study guide. And so that study guide isn't beginning until September or October of 2022, right? And so we're, we're about 11 months out from that, 10 months out from that. And so we're already beginning that process because, yeah, the timeline is like we have a designer that we hire. That takes quite a while. We have a printer that we go through. That takes quite a while um, to organize all that. So there's a big process behind that. But essentially, I invite uh, – I'm trying to invite more lay people, non-staff members into the process of what it looks like to write the study guide. Um, but essentially, I have a meeting with them. I lay out my hope and my expectations for the study guide. I'm, I want our study guides to be ever growing in that formation, spiritual formation and application realm. Um, we have a wide gamut of people at Epicos from spiritual infants to spiritual maturity. And so like the observe and interpret that that's really for like the, I, this isn't, I don't mean this to sound crass, but that's for the, the spiritual infants, right? To just be engaging with scripture for maybe the first time. The formation application, while the spiritual infants, it's good for them to be doing that. The people who have been walking with Jesus for a while um, have maybe already studied the book of John, right? And so they know the the basics of the observe and interpret, but I want to draw them deeper into the formation application. And so I lay out a big picture at this meeting of what my hope is for this study guide. Uh, and then as we write on a whiteboard, uh, very practically, all the passages and essentially, I say, hey, which ones do you guys want to take? You got to take at least two to three, depending on the size of the study guide and how many people are on the team. And so once that's all been assigned, uh, I give them however many weeks, according to our calendar year and deadline, what they need. Uh, give them a certain amount of time to, to go home and uh, work on the passages, draw out, observe and interpret questions, discussion questions, and formation and application questions. And then after that's done, um, myself and my team will review them both for grammar issues um, but also just for like theological issues, if there are any, so staying on the line of scripture. Um, cause I think it's really easy, especially in the formation application questions to kind of get off the line of scripture and not maintain the original intent of the author. And so we kind of gather, um, I proofread them. I have Grammarly, I paid for it for the year and it's been literally amazing and has saved me many typing errors. I think we finally feel like we have this like entire Google doc of all the questions written up. And then I hit turn on on Grammarly and Google in Google docs. And it's like, you have 323 errors that you need to correct. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the process. And then uh, once we get to the time that the sermon is actually preached and people are going through the study guide, I will personally listen to the sermon, uh, both if I'm in sermon eval on Thursdays, but also on Sunday mornings. And then um, I kind of write up, Leaders' notes to go along with those. And then leaders' notes, they're broken down into different sections. So you have the title, obviously, in the passage. You have a community building section. So just giving small group leaders an idea of how to build community. You have a reminder section, just upcoming events, um, stuff like that. 
Then you have a like the textual discussion section, which is, hey, Pastor so-and-so walked us through this passage, and these were his three main points. And then I'll often write compelling questions to go along with each of his points and explain them, expand upon them a little bit more. And then finally, I have a where to land section, which is like, if, if somebody uses leader's notes, these aren't, these aren't mandatory, but if somebody uses leader's notes, like this is my hope on where the small group discussion should land. What do we want people to walk away with or engage with as a result of discussing the sermon that night? Yeah, I think that the questions in the book, um, you know, and then the actual sermon, the, the disconnect might only become where the preacher applies the application because the intent of the study guide is really like, what does the scripture say and what is right. the natural application from the text itself, as opposed to like where the pastor, the preacher will take a, a homiletical view and may focus on one aspect that probably is oftentimes touched in the book, but the preacher yeah. will spend majority of their sermon that only one question in the book ha- focuses on where like, um, and, and, and it's, so what I found is, and we can, we can praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit and how he works, but like, you know, oftentimes the book does line up with the sermon very, very well, but the preacher may focus on one one application point a little longer than the book gives time for or whatever, because the intention of the book is where like if you wanted to do just like a personal Bible study where you read the scripture and then use these questions and don't listen to a sermon, this study guide actually could do that. Like that's yep. kind of like it, it could be a great personal reflection of scripture by itself. But what the sermon happens is it actually creates even more conversation and and um and brings out the book even further because of the the preaching that was given that Sunday. And so that email that you send every week, which adds maybe one or two questions or yeah. focuses on the you know landing the plane on what the the main takeaway the preacher gave is actually just like it's more icing to the cake that's already pretty hearty, if that makes sense. For sure. Uh, yeah. To, I would to, say to that the the disconnect between the study and the sermon is not a theological disconnect. Right. It's a it's a focal disconnect, right? Yeah. So I think how you said it is is very well said. And 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 and, and for people who are listening, like I just want to make sure that, that you understand that we have a, there's a budget line every year for books. Uh we yep. we spend a lot of money to make sure these books are very well printed. They're like Really, really nice. Uh, it's 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 probably on par to any kind of softback book you would find at any bookstore. Uh, even has a barcode and and all this other stuff. And there's yep. a and if you're interested in knowing more information about that side of things, there's a really good printer in Wisconsin that we use. But you know, I know Blurb.com is the place where I've printed books at, and they'll probably be similar quality and stuff. Um, printing actual books is is a whole side of work and effort that uh, takes a lot of time and energy to kind of think about because you'll need someone that knows Adobe InDesign to lay out the book and <laughs> pick all the fonts to be consistent with that. Where there's chances are, unless there's someone really creative on your team, you might not have that. We don't have that on our team. We actually outsource, we outsource all that. It. We outsource our book layout guy. We outsource the person that designs the book. And obviously we outsource the actual printing. But if you were to do something in-house, let's say – you just wanted to make a PDF and make it like a uh, um, like accessible through digital copies or something like that. Like that's all possible. We just take the extra step for printing physical books. I mean, you Not could to- just use poor man's uh, Photoshop, right? You could just use Canva. Yeah. Import it. I mean, it might take some time, but like you can go and do that, and you can print right from there and print it in house. Yeah, yeah. 
and 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 Nothan says that like so we do sell the books and it's not to make money because we actually I don't I mean I don't know the, the behind it but it's like we sell the books five dollars each and I don't think that's just to like make sure we kind of maybe break even or something but we, we want it to be as accessible. We, I'm sure we do. We lose yeah. money in the study guides and definitely almost always and this is kind of a pro tip for like pastors is when you do have these physical study guides. Um, I see them as like opportunities to give us gifts to new believers. Yep. So whenever someone comes in and they're like the first time at Epicos and they're like, what is this small group thing and stuff like that? I freely just get a study guide. Like, Hey, here's a book for you. You don't have to pay for it. Especially towards the end of a small group season when we're about, when yeah. the book's about to become obsolete. We want to get rid of those books as much as possible. And so I just start freely giving them. We've, we've got a whole room of old study guides all the way back <laughs> to like 2015. Yeah, man. So, so, so it, it becomes actually like a a, a gifting tool um, that that people love and people use. I mean, on Sundays you'll see people with their Bible and their small group guide, and they're both open for the sermon. But uh, a question that's been brought up a lot uh, was, you know, and this is true for Epicos. You kind of hinted towards it. Epicos is a diverse church where we have both people who are brand new in the faith and people who are very mature in the faith. How do you go about writing your study guide where the questions are both accessible for those who are newer to the faith and for those who have been Christians for decades? How do you, how do you think about writing your study guide to, to reach both crowds? Yeah. Um, kind of, like I said, just from a structural standpoint, the types of questions we ask is the main thing I would say. So the observe and interpret, those are easy questions to just get people diving into the study of scripture, how to do it, what to look for observations to make that sort of stuff. Um, the discussion questions are really for, Anybody? So I'm trying to think of a good example of a discussion question. Um, I'm looking at John 15, 1 to 11, one of the discussion questions. Um, it says, what do you think Jesus means when he says that your joy may be full? How does Jesus's definition of joy contradict your own or the world's definition of joy? And so I think that's a very tangible type question that people can share from their own experience, share from their own life knowledge the discussion questions are really to just get people talking and engaging their life with what's happening in scripture. And so they're not super theological, like how does Jesus's definition of joy contradict your own Think about their personal life? How does Jesus's definition of joy contradict the world's definition of joy? I think that's, those are very easy questions to ramp into. Um, but then, as I said earlier, the, the formation application questions, while people who are new to faith can certainly and, and should engage with them, um, these are kind of next steps for people who have been walking with Jesus who want a little bit more. Um, I mean, I'm a pastor and I don't engage with all the spiritual disciplines as much as I desire to, right? Like my Sabbath practice has has fallen off um, and I want to get back to it. Or like I don't always practice silence and solitude. And these questions just serve as a really good reminder to re-engage with those. So I would say structurally is is the main way that we cover that wide swath of spiritual maturity at our church please feel free to be as candid as you want to be you know i think a lot of churches they have a sunday school kind of um uh way of doing formation or discipleship they some churches have men's ministries and women's ministries there's there's a bunch of different philosophies and we've already said you said in the beginning we have a simple church mentality and so i guess what is one piece of advice maybe someone's listening to this and they're like man i hate my sunday school program I hate the fact that there's like all these, you know, different ministries that are disjointed. I want to start a Sunday school program. Sorry, a small group program in my church. What's one piece of advice 
you would give someone who wants to enter into a small group model or wants to enter into creating resources like our small group guide, um, what's one bit of advice what you would give to them as someone who's in that role right now? Yeah, I think the first thing is um, depending on your position in the church, that's going to have a huge impact. It has to come from the top down. Like it has to come from your, your lead pastor. It has to come from your senior leadership team that this is going to be the focal point of your church, like what you're going to do. Beyond that, um, I was earlier this year, I was coaching a church here in Wisconsin because they're thinking about making the switch away from what would be called programmatic ministry to small group ministry. Because while they have small groups, they've actually been discovering that even though they've been like talking more about small groups and making more push for small groups, because they still have programmatic ministry, men's, men's ministry, women's ministry, all these different types of affinity group type things, it takes away from people's engagement in small groups. And so they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot, uh, in the foot at, at times. And they realize this. And so um, I was talking to them about how long they should expect to be able to make this shift. And I told them like, just off the top of my head, I was like, you're going to need at least 18 to 24 months to make the shift away from programmatic ministry to small group ministry. Because in all honesty, people aren't going to like it. Like people like their affinity groups. They like their men's groups, women's groups, age and stage groups types of things. Those aren't bad. It's just deciding what your, your model of ministry, your philosophy of ministry is. And so um, I'd say one piece, more than one piece of advice. First one, um, get your senior leadership on board or cast a vision for what it could look like at your church. Secondly, give yourself grace, give yourself patience. Realize that you can't write the ship overnight. It's going to take months and months and months to get people caught um, caught into the vision, on board with it. Um, and then and only then, I would say, start creating those resources. But don't create, you're going to waste your time if you start trying to create those resources. And you're going to be like, I put so much time and effort into this, and then nobody's going to buy in, or your senior leadership team's not going to want it. Um, so yeah, just know that it takes time. Be patient. That's awesome. Hey, is there a, a, a way you would be comfortable with people getting in contact with you if they had questions about what you're doing and stuff? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they can just uh, send me an email, malika at epicos.org. That's M-O-L-L-I-C-A at epicos.org. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I hope you guys reach out to them. He's great. Adam, thank you so much for uh, all this wisdom and advice, and I hope more churches begin doing some small groups. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So if you are interested in getting one of those small group guides, we, we're, we're going to upload a couple into the Facebook group. So if you're not in our Facebook group, make sure you join our Facebook group because there we will be uploading uh, a couple of the books and you'll be able to at minimum see kind of how we lay out the book, how we write those questions. Or at maximum, as Jeff told me, what he's going to do is he's going to make the sermon series for the next couple of years based <laughs> on the study guides that we've created. But also, you can uh, reach out to, I think his email is malika, M-O-L-L-I-C-A, at epicoms.org. And uh, you can uh, talk to him some more um, about how we do small groups and how we do the study guides. Hey, with that said, uh, Andrew talked about this. I can't believe this is the first episode in, in since we've since since we've announced the, the, the conference that we forgot to talk about the conference in the front end of the show. What? February 21st to 23rd. Hey, I wanted to do a specific call out. And this is, Andrew and Tim are going to give you their best plead for this. If you live in Florida and you're a pastor, 
you have no reason to not come to this. Right, guys? None. Talk to them. Absolutely no reason. You should be. You want to be. This will be, hands down, the best conference you have done probably in your ministry career. I mean, that's fair to say. It's a great spot, <laughs> great wow. location, great people. A a little pressure. Miles is going to speak. Um, probably not. No. Furtick might be there. Furtick is invited. <laughs> if he if he comes, I he don't know that invited. we'll give him a microphone, but he is invited to register. And in fact, we'd still even give him a Black Friday code. If he wanted to come, we'd extend the code. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but with that said, if, if you haven't done so, go to pridelypastoringconference.com. This is still a great Christmas gift to, to a, a pastor friend of yours. Um, we want you there. Tell a friend. Share this with a friend. Um, we want – if your title is pastor, if you serve as a pastor at a church, regardless of where you are in the org chart – we want you at the Practically Pastor Conference. I will say, I think it was around Black Friday weekend, I saw that one church is sending three people. So I think it's like the senior pastor and I think maybe like a couple other people on their staff. So there's one staff of a church that are coming together. That was super exciting to see. So again, if you're already planning on coming, talk to your senior pastor, talk to your youth pastor, talk to someone else in your staff. We would love to see teams of people come. But also... The big, a big reason why we're doing this this conference is because I rarely see Jeff in person. I rarely see Tim and Andrew in person. I rarely see Dell in person. And it's my opportunity to see my internet pastor friends in person. And so invite your friends to the Practically Pastoring Conference, February 21st to 23rd, com. With that said, we hope to see you here next week. I'm Frank Gill. I'm Jeff Simpson. I'm Andrew Larson. And I'm Timothy Miller. This is Practically Pastoring. See you next week. Bye. Later. Thanks for listening. Get connected to other pastors by joining the Practically Pastoring Facebook group, where we get to share ideas and make each other better.